people talk about the day that they give birth as the happiest day in their life when they get to meet this baby. And it doesn't happen like that for everybody. And it's not what happened for me. And it really caught me off guard and terrified me that the love wasn't there when I was pregnant. Welcome to Daring to Tell. This is the podcast where memoir and essay writers read their own true stories of personal daring, and then we talk about it. I am Michelle Rado. Nothing's gonna make me brave. Nothing's gonna make me brave. Nothing's gonna make me brave except doing what makes me scared. How long will it take you to do the thing you really want to do or to be the thing you really want to be? Writing is something that can take a very long time. It is slow. Often the ideas about what we want to say come slowly and how we want to say them also come slowly. Even just the process of typing or writing out a single letter at a time is slow. And if you have ideations of even publishing, well, that is even slower. Slow might feel frustrating, especially in our world today. However, slow is part of what I have discovered that I love about writing. Writing gives us a chance to put some words down, to think about them, change them, revisit them, usually again and again and again. And I also fully believe that many of the most satisfying things that we do or aspire to do take a long time. Today, I am talking with Elena Dillon, whose memoir is called My Body is a Big Fat Temple, about her up-close and very personal experience of being pregnant. Now, I'm quite aware of the fact that I am a person constantly in search of myself on the pages of the books that I seek out. So when she pitched her memoir to me, it wasn't something I immediately felt like I would identify with, having never been pregnant. I was surprised, though, even delighted to see myself a bit in her pages in two ways. First, in her initial deliberation as to whether or not she even wanted to start a family at all, but also what unfolded to be her deep desire to share all the stuff that people usually do not discuss when it comes to being pregnant and giving birth. And that is where I was also fully on board in an endeavor to talk about the difficult and unappealing parts when it comes to being sick and more so to not feeling the way our popular culture dictates that we are supposed to feel, especially around babies and motherhood. In addition to that, I just adored her writing story, which is, yes, you guessed it, a long, slow story of just continuing on with doing the thing that some of us are just called to do, and that is to write. And I, for one, am very glad that she kept on writing until she arrived at this book. So with that, please meet today's writer, Elena Dillon. Welcome to Daring to Tell. Yes, thank you for having me. Absolutely. So you have written a few books, which as an aspiring writer, we look at the published people and go, oh, (laughs) it's amazing. But you and we had a great 
pre-conversation about this. You've written two novels, Mercy House and Happiest Girl in the World. And I wonder if you want to start by just talking a little bit about your writing journey and how did you make it even up to this book? Yeah, so I've I've always wanted to be a writer. That's what I've pursued since I was 10. Um, and I really seriously started pursuing it after um, my undergraduate when I entered a master's program. And, and actually, was, if you don't mind, sure. I might cut you off just at that. What, what like what was the 10 year old part of you? What, what was that <laughs> little 10 year old that wanted to be a writer? So I always read um, and I was reading kind of grown up books um, that maybe were inappropriate for me. I, oh. I, I remember I looked I looked through a, a fifth grade yearbook. And there was like a prompt that said favorite book. And my answer was separate beds, um, which I think was, was I don't like know a, that book. What is it? <laughs> well, I, I don't actually know it either today, but oh, it was a Laverle Spencer novel. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, it was just about a marriage that had a rift and uh, the couple. <laughs> so they were sleeping in separate beds, which was, um, you know, not really your usual fifth grade fodder. No. Um, <laughs> so yeah, so I, I was a big reader, um, always biking to the library, and I was really into Mary Higgins Clark at that mm-hmm. age too. And I, my mom took me out of school to go meet her at BJ's once. Oh, um, cool. Yeah, and uh, I still have the book that she signed, and I had told her that I wanted to be an author, so she oh. wrote, she inscribed it to a future author, think royalty checks. <laughs> and um, I actually, funnily enough, I received my first royalty check the year that she passed away, which was oh. like 25 years after we had met. Wow. Um, yeah. So yeah, I, I started writing my first book in fifth grade on my dad's work computer. And like after he was done, you know, after hours, yeah. um, and he erased it when he was defragging his computer once and oh my it broke God. my heart and, yeah. and he know he knew how much it meant to me so he was crying when he told me oh, that oh he erased God. it that's like one of the, you know one of those moments that just like sticks with you in your brain it just like one of those sticky moments Absolutely. um and i yeah i just remember us holding each other on my bed <laughs> um I, I rewrote it but as a play because i couldn't <laughs> Right. I couldn't imagine doing the whole process over again. Right, so I, I, right. I was, then I tried a, a different genre. Wow, that's um, a really early <laughs> lesson in rewriting and probably, you know, hitting save and double backups and all that. Stuff. Yes, exactly. <laughs> now I have every manuscript saved in multiple places. Right. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> yeah, I'll never relive that. So I, you know, took creative writing classes in high school and was into it recreationally. But then after college, I started pursuing it as like my career. Like this is what I wanted to do with my life. Mm-hmm. I was studying nonfiction at first. Mm-hmm. I just really liked kind of exploring my voice and discovering other voices in nonfiction. Mm-hmm. And after I graduated, that's what I continued to do. I wrote a few essay collections and, you know, the kinds of memoirs that a 22-year-old can write. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I was trying to get representation and, you know, publishing it in small presses. And it just wasn't yeah. working, probably mm-hmm. because I didn't really have a story to tell at that point. But the feedback that I kept hearing, you know, about for nonfiction writers in particular was that you either needed a huge platform mm-hmm. to make it more marketable and more attractive for an editor to take you on or you needed a huge hook in your story, right. um, which right. I didn't have either. Yeah. So, you know, 
practically, I was like, okay, how am I going to, I started a blog, you know, and tried to like build a platform like so many people do and have done. And then I was like, okay, but maybe I can, another way to build a platform would be if I was a fiction writer first. So that's when I started changing courses Mm -hmm. and I had never written fiction before really. So I, I wrote a few fiction manuscripts and went out again to get representation. And it was easier. I mean, it's not, it's not easy writing a novel. Right, like it right. took me, I'm, make, I'm making it sound simple. It took years, <laughs> right. but I, I was getting more traction with fiction. So yeah. I, I got representation and they started submitting the manuscripts and we got rejections, but, but from big houses, like, right. uh, which meant that my work was going across the desks of people at big houses, which was like kind of a thrill in itself. Yeah. And then years continued to go by yeah. and I changed agents because I thought, well, maybe she had, you know, submitted three novels on my behalf. Um, So I was like, maybe I can present these to a different agent and they'll have a different take. Mm -hmm. So I tried that and then kept writing more books. But once I wrote Mercy House, which ended up being my debut novel and presenting it to my second agent, he said that he didn't like the character and didn't want to work with that book. And I I just really believed in it. I was Mm -hmm. passionate about it. So I broke it off with that agent and then started submitting again. Um, And this is now like 10 years into the process of when I graduated and started to become a fiction writer to when I got my third agent, who is the one that kind of launched my entire career. So after 10 years, I mean, I probably wrote six different manuscripts from nonfiction to fiction before Mercy House. Yeah. Um, and had three agents. And then suddenly in May, 2018, my agent took me on and she gave me a few revision suggestions and I embraced them. I was really excited about them. We went back and forth. Sometimes when you meet with a new collaborator and you're just so excited about a project, we probably went back and forth on revisions like three times in one week. It was just Mm -hmm. like, we were just like on fire between the two of us. And by June, we had interest from Hollywood, which was just crazy. Um, After 10 years of just like being happy when I got a good rejection from a publishing house, um, (laughs) to be then like feel building phone calls from producers and actresses. And it was just surreal. And then by August, I had a publishing deal and we were moving forward with Amy Schumer as producing the book for a television series. So it was just slow, 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 just like hatching away at this glass ceiling. And then suddenly everything just fell down and things have just been going smoothly since then. So I'm really grateful that I found the right people finally, and that I'm making money right now as a writer, which was just like huge. It's huge. It's hard to do. Um, Yeah. yeah. And sometimes it feels like everything's working against you and it's just like so impossible. And will this ever happen for me? And how long does it make sense to delay like a career while I'm pursuing this unlikely dream. Yeah, if I, I mean, that is so impressive. And I was so taken by your story and manuscript after manuscript and keeping going. And I think a couple of the things that really impressed me about how you did keep going were, first of all, always like taking revisions, taking notes. Okay, if this agent isn't, you know, if this book isn't working, I'll try a different book. If this genre isn't working, well, I'll switch (laughs) to fiction. If this, you know, you just kept bouncing back. And what kept you re-embracing each time? I mean, I, I guess I wonder if you felt like, well, this thing I just did, I can do something better than that. Was it sort of a little challenge each time? Or what was the the bounce back? 
I think part of it is that I'm a really efficient person. And like when I've collected so many years of work and if I just cast it aside, that would have just been so much wasted work. Yeah. So I think part of it was like, I need to turn this into something that right. is worthwhile. Otherwise, all of that would have been futile. Right. But I think the main part, though, is that I just am only happy and satisfied when I'm writing. So in that 10 year span, I'm sure there are periods where I just was like, okay, I'm not gonna like, I was so discouraged that I wasn't writing. Mm -hmm. And like people around me could tell, particularly my husband um, was like, you know, you're grumpy, (laughs) like you're just not you're not feeling fulfilled right now. So it was just like, it wasn't a choice for me where I could say, it doesn't make sense to keep pursuing this. It was just something that I needed to dedicate myself to. So yeah, I think it was just a matter of, I had no choice but to do that because otherwise I wasn't happy and the people living with me weren't happy. Right, right. I love that so much. And that's a question I revisit with a lot of writers that I talk with, which is why do you write? And Is there something, be it like, I mean, it just makes you a happier person. It sort of makes you you. I don't know if you have a larger perspective on that beyond that. Yeah. I mean, I can't think of any other hobby that I have that I feel the same about. You know, I mean, it's like like runners. You know, I just started taking up running Mm -hmm. um, with the pandemic. And Mm -hmm. before, I I never understood people that could run. Mm -hmm. But yeah, once there's a practice that you're used to, and it's incorporated into your life when you neglect it, you just kind of feel that agitation. Mm -hmm. So like, that's the only thing I could compare it to is that when I wasn't writing, I was agitated. Right. Uh, And I'm not an artist in any other way. Like there's, there's no other outlet that I could find where I, you know, I've tried jewelry making or like painting and I'm just not a creator in other avenues of art. So like, this is my only creation expression. Yeah, I get it. And it's funny you picked the running analogy because I also have not like traditionally ever been a runner runner in my early days, but me with, I have a GI history, which I kind of reference a little bit, um, but like with my gut surgery and recovery, running has turned out to be a really good thing for me. And additionally, the pandemic, I agree, is like, okay, it's a thing we can do and get outside. And yeah. it does become a practice. And I think like writing, there's a lot of, I don't know, I just feel like I talk with enough writers that there's overlap between writing and running. It works. I felt the same. Since I've become a writer, I've noticed how many other writers are runners too. Yeah. There, there must be some the repetitiveness, the discipline, yeah. um, self-punishment. I don't, I <laughs> a don't know. Bit. I know. <laughs> you feel so good when you stop. <laughs> yes. Like the, that feeling of having run is yeah. very similar to the feeling of having written. Yeah. It's like something you have under your belt. You have yes. now done it. And yes, you, you feel, feel good. spent. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. So the next iteration of your journey With this book, My Body is a Big Fat Temple, which came out in October of 21, right? Is that when it? Yes. Yes. How did that book come into vision for you? When and how did you conceive of it? So since I started writing fiction, I always would like would occasionally write an essay, a nonfiction essay and return to my original genre Mm -hmm. um, when something of significance happened to me and I needed to process it and kind of understand why it was important to me and why it's important, 
in the greater context of humanity, why it matters. Mm. And so when I was deciding whether or not to start a family, that was the first essay I wrote, which, which was about like getting a dog and, and how everyone right. says that that's like the gateway into having a child. So, yeah. so I started writing just to like kind of figure out why it was that I didn't have this compulsion to have a child. Like you so often hear, mm-hmm. um, you know, the, your maternal clock starts ticking. Like I, I wasn't feeling this calling to be a mother. Right. And that concerned me. But I also was wondering if maybe it was normal. And so I was just kind of like, I started writing to figure out what it meant. And I also started kind of collecting narratives to read to see what other women's journey was like when they decided to have a family and then got pregnant. And those early mothering years, just just kind of prepare myself for what to expect and to see if I could recognize myself in, in other people's pages. And did you? Um, I did, but there, I found that there just weren't that many. Mm -hmm. Um, so there, there were a lot of, you know, science oriented pregnancy books or like how to parenting books, but there wasn't as many as I would have expected of just motherhood narratives, Mm -hmm. considering how universal the experience is and how like prevalent it is. Mm -hmm. So there were certainly a few and I I poured over those and I've continued to give them to my friends who are starting to have kids. But I I just thought that there was a dearth in that area of the bookstore. Like, why are we ignoring mother stories? And as I became pregnant and went through the process, it occurred to me that we in general do just ignore mother stories, like, or we stick to one particular kind of mother story that we feel comfortable with. We've kind of preserved this ideal mother, the kind of like social media mother story that's Mm -hmm. out there Mm -hmm. of like a romantic journey where like all of the kind of uglier parts are minimized or censored Mm -hmm. or made cutesy, Mm -hmm. you know, like, (laughs) like, like morning sickness, for instance, is like very debilitating and life impeding. Yeah. But, but like we kind of put it to just like one part of the day. Yeah. Um, even yeah. though for a lot of people it plagues them for all day and for like the entire time potentially. The baby blues, like there's just so many different things that are troubling about pregnancy that we kind of spin with euphemisms yes. to make the general public more comfortable with the fact of what women have to grapple. Mm-hmm. So yeah, as I was encountering how difficult aspects of pregnancy and motherhood are and how little we talk about it, it became clear to me that I needed to write it for myself to process what I was going through and to like understand how we ignore certain parts of the story, but also to like, you know, there's that old adage, like write what you want to read. Mm-hmm. Um, so like just, just kind of be a voice for other women out there who, who maybe want to find someone that they recognize and to feel less alone. Because the problem with like, pushing this one narrative about the perfect mother is that if you don't feel that way and that isn't your experience, there's a lot of shame that comes with it. Mm -hmm. So we should be talking about it more transparently so that people feel normal. I could not agree with you more. And it's funny that you say that um, also about people, because um, myself as a people out there who never had a child, and it was neither a great thing nor a terrible thing. It just sort of was how my life rolled out. Um, Mm -hmm. But that being said, even not having a child, I saw myself in your book and in your story a little bit in that there was also a period of time when 
there is this focus on young women that, oh, you're going to have this real maternal pull. Oh, you're going to want a baby. And that we're told we're going to have all these experiences that we may or may not have. And um, I, I couldn't feel more strongly about getting those other points of view out there. So that was truly what I loved about your book. And even though you ended up going down the path of motherhood, I loved the eyes wide open. Let's talk about all this stuff going on because it's just important to see all of our stories or at least more of our stories in this thing called motherhood. Yeah. I mean, and, and womanhood in general, because yes. like, like you said, like women are to some degree, just treated as future mothers. Mm-hmm. Like it's inevitable. Like, like that is your, that is your path. That is your biological imperative. Right. And like the under, like you're supposed to just accept the fact that if you don't go that route, you'll eventually regret it. Mm-hmm. And like, that's just not necessarily the case. Like right. there's just like so many ways to live. So mm-hmm. why are we limiting it? And there's a lot of drawbacks to having children. So like, let's recognize those because, you know, for the mothers that are struggling, it kind of minimizes their struggles and their challenges. And for the women who decided not to have children, it's painting them with a stroke that a paint, a paint stroke that like, maybe they don't ever actually represent. Right. Exactly. I feel like that's a really great lead up to what the couple of chapters that I have asked you to read today for Daring to Tell. So there's one tiny little line in here. I don't think we need a lot of setup, but you do make a parenthetical comment about, oh yeah, remember, T-G-I-D. Thank God it's diarrhea. (laughs) (laughs) Can that refer us back to something you had said earlier? So maybe just like, you know, I think that we could probably guess... Yeah. Airing between diarrhea and constipation in different scenarios, we pick diarrhea, right? Right. Yeah. So that just refers to like a mother chat room that I was in where they lean so heavily on these abbreviations, which everyone just like seems to know. That's like this weird mother language in these chat rooms. And during pregnancy, it's like you're either constipated or you're not. The preference is not to be. Yes. (laughs) That one I can relate to. Definitely. (laughs) So Um, I will introduce Elena Dillon reading Listeria, Hysteria, and the chapter that follows it called Letter to Baby from My Body is a Big Fat Temple. Thanks. Yeah, just really quickly. It's kind of funny that I'm reading this Listeria, Hysteria because it takes place when I'm 24 weeks pregnant and I am 24 weeks pregnant today so another little (laughs) yeah coincidence that's kind of funny so now I can recognize myself on my own pages (laughs) (laughs) nice okay we are on a getaway with friends when it gets away from me the four of us and our pups travel to New Hampshire every fall for a weekend of hiking foliage and drinking by the fire my hiking and drinking abilities are compromised this year so I know it won't be exactly like past weekends but I don't predict it will be different in quite this way I allow what I expect will be a small release of gas, but I am wrong. Luckily, I have the upstairs to myself when literal hell breaks loose. I waddle across the hall to the bathroom and find that my underwear is drenched in shame. Such a thing has never happened in my adult life. I can't even remember it happening when I was a child. Now I'll never forget it. After stuffing my soiled underwear at the bottom of the garbage can and covering it with a heap of crumpled toilet paper, I put on a brave face, go downstairs, and have breakfast with my husband and friends, pretending I'm not a 32-year-old woman who just shit herself a little bit. 
Coffee, they ask? No thanks. When we are alone, I admit the accident to Phil. He is not horrified. He is hysterical. He'll later craft a song parody to the tune of Beauty and the Beast that begins, It's that age-old tale. She thought it was a gas, but what came out her ass had substantial mass. Elena shit her pants. In the moment, he just says, please tell me you are bent over. Has this ever happened to you, I ask? He is so ensnared by laughter, he smacks his leg. No, he says, stretching the word into multiple syllables. Then he straightens and adds more seriously, although I've come close. In his podcast, Dax Shepard admits it happens to him about once a year, a shocking rate of occurrence. His theory is that men are more aggressive in that department, and when you approach flatulence like an extreme sport, you make mistakes. Now it had happened to me. The question was, after 30 years of control, why now? It had to be Listeria. From the moment the double line sharpens on that pee stick, pamphlets detailing unsafe foods are all but shoved under the bathroom door. Among common no-nos are soft cheeses and deli meat. Why? Listeria, a fanged pathogenic bacterium. If infected, mothers can present with mild fever, headache, and diarrhea, pretty generic symptoms, or they may show no signs at all. You might never realize you are sick while the bacteria seep through your placenta and into your amniotic sac. Infection is extremely dangerous to the baby and can cause miscarriage, premature birth, or stillbirth. The fetal fatality rate is 20 to 30%, and the only means of diagnosis is a blood or amniotic fluid culture, a practice no one does regularly. It's basically every knocked-up woman's nightmare, our version of the boogeyman. Because our immune systems are repressed so as not to reject the fetus, pregnant women are 20 times more susceptible to being infected with hysteria. And because the stakes are so much higher if we become ill, we are read the tale of listeriosis at doctor's offices, in books, on chat rooms, and around campfires. Still, listeriosis is pretty rare, even among the expecting. Only 12 in 100,000 pregnant women are infected. Might this statistic be higher if we feasted on day-old Subway sandwiches and cold hot dogs like drunken undergraduates? Maybe. But we anticipate the disease as if it's just waiting to pounce on our developing progeny, also like drunken undergraduates. To defend the buns in our ovens, we shrink away from Italian subs and farm stands. But the truth is that listeria can exist on virtually any food. While there have been more incidences on cold prepared meats and unpasteurized cheeses, the bacteria have also been found on chicken, pork, seafood, and vegetables. It's impossible to avoid risk completely. Unfortunately, when I get sick, convinced I've been bitten by listeria's venom, I can't defend myself by pointing to the ubiquitous nature of bacteria because I fell prey to the main culprit. I'd stopped for cider donuts and, overcome by basic white girl autumnal excitement, lost all sense of pregnancy etiquette. I heaped my arms full of produce, pie, artisanal bread, and a spinach cheese spread made from not just any cheese, but feta, a soft cheese, purchased not at a grocery store chain where every product is stamped with pasteurized sticker, where you couldn't hunt down an unsafe cheese to endanger your life, but at a farm stand. I am suddenly convinced that, swept up in a whirlwind of country wholesomeness, I killed my baby. Death by crudite. For the next week, I never venture far from a toilet, and whenever I'm not hovered over that hallowed, hollowed seat, by God, I clench my tush. I wait four days to call my doctor. I don't want to be that patient who drops by every time she shits her pants. The call nurse isn't concerned because I don't have a fever, contractions, or bleeding. At 24 weeks, the fetus has a 50% chance of survival outside the womb. If I've created a poisonous environment and he's dying inside me, I think we should free him to offer the kid a fighting chance. So I ask, isn't it worth popping in for an ultrasound? No, it isn't, she says, because I am probably the 30th panicked, irritated bowel to call that day. 
Remember, TGID. Thank God it's diarrhea. Waiting to be struck down by illness, I see symptoms in everything. I wake up sweating and am convinced the fever my thermometer couldn't detect is now breaking. When the fetus goes placid in my belly, I don't consider that he is small and has repositioned in a way that makes him more discreet. I am sure my placenta deteriorated and the little guy is suffocating. No matter what the nurse says, no matter what my husband says, no matter what my mother or the internet says, I feel it. My womb is turning into a tomb. Paranoia can be funny in retrospect, but at the time I'm not laughing. I am preparing to grieve. I prearrange what I'll do with the painfully futile existence of the furnished nursery. I knew buying the crib, changing table, and car seat so far in advance was premature, but it was prime day. When the boxes were delivered one after the other, my neighbor asked, Who's delivering your baby, FedEx or UPS? If something happens to the baby now, five and a half months along, I'll ask a friend to peel off the birch tree decals, fill painstakingly stuck to the wall, disassemble the furniture, box the clothes and accessories, and pack it all in the attic. I'll call my parents, make sure they aren't driving, break the news, and let them call other family members. I'll text everyone else. I won't be able to say it over and over again. I'll email my students. They might not always pay attention, but even they'll notice a shrinking stomach. My gastrointestinal issues clear after a week. A day or so later, the baby shifts and I again feel his movements. I palm my stomach, wait for his touch, and we hold hands through the universe that separates us. I am comforted by these developments, but I sense that confidence is tenuous and will remain only until the next bout of irregularity. When I deliver the baby, my focus will shift, and I'll zero in on his abnormalities. I'll count the ounces he drank or didn't. I'll tune into every rash. I'll analyze every off-color poo. I'll live in the agony between his breaths. This must be what it means to cradle something I don't want to lose, to care, maybe even to love. A constant hum of anxiety in my ears, a worried preoccupation, an endless series of listeria hysterias, until my poor restless heart wears out. Letter to Baby, 27 Weeks. Dear Baby, it's 6.30 on a November morning. The branches outside the window are almost bare. My belly is hard and globed, like half the world is hanging off my middle. The sparrows are beginning to wake, and so are you, baby. You're rolling around my stomach, stretching, yawning maybe. Are you a morning person like your dad? Will the two of you tiptoe in the tranquil hours while I sleep in? Or is time warped in your dark, humid incubator, and when you emerge into the exacting sunshine of this world, will you be cranky and scowl against the light of the morning, like me, your mama? We're almost through the second trimester, you and me. You're as big as a cabbage. Your eyes are beginning to open. You've grown hair. You can hear my voice. Hello, baby. We've reached an important milestone. If you came now, don't come now, you'll likely be okay. You are no longer absolutely dependent on my body. You'd have a rough start, but you could do it. You'd survive on your own. Don't take that as a hint. You can stay where you are. You still need to practice breathing and gain weight. So get comfortable. One of us should. We've called you several things since we learned of you. Lately, we are trying out Rowan. Rowan is what the Irish call a red-berried mountain ash, a tree whose roots sink deep to thrive amidst the inhospitable soil of a rocky hillside read between the lines, on the inhospitable soil. If we go with that name, we'll swap the A for an E to make you ours. Even with a name, we have no idea who you'll become. To some extent, you'll be a shifting, viscous thing that will never stop transforming as you sample different characteristics, as various factors in your environment influence you, and as your priorities and personhood evolve. 
but maybe the core of you will remain steady. I know I can't be predestining, but I do have a wish list. Here it is, no pressure. I hope you'll be goofy, not too proud or self-conscious to embrace silliness wholeheartedly. I hope you'll be curious that you'll find the world a fascinating place with mysteries compelling you to turn every rock and check behind every door. I hope you'll smile and laugh easily. I hope you'll, for the most part, be unendingly kind, unless the person in question is not deserving of your kindness. I hope you'll have that rare quality that makes others feel special, the way your great-grandfather does. I hope you won't feel superior to those around you, and if good fortune gives you a leg up, that you'll offer your hand to pull your neighbor to your height. I hope you'll be compulsively honest, willing to share secrets that verge on the embarrassing, because this promotes intimacy, humility, and human connection. I hope you'll be optimistic. There is plenty of darkness in this world, so it doesn't take much effort to stay in the shadows. The lucky ones gravitate toward the light, and the ones who aren't so lucky but who are smart work their way there. I hope you'll realize there's always more to learn, always room for self-improvement, and yet be wise enough to love and forgive yourself for your imperfections, because we're all crazy and flawed in a million different ways. Some of these traits you'd inherit from me, but most are the reasons I fell in love with your father. He may be silly and gracious and a more conscientious cook, but I'm wittier and more intuitive and have a party trick memory for personal details, which comes in handy more often than you'd think. He seems like the easy choice for favorite parent, but sometimes he forgets to check the toilet to see if everything flushed down, so don't be so quick to decide. I don't know what kind of person you'll turn into and in what ways you'll change. I look forward to meeting all of your versions. For now, all we know is that you're ours, and maybe that's enough. I felt this acutely when the hospital explained that they are going to give the three of us, and only us, matching bracelets. Mom, dad, and baby. Distinct family markers. It's for security purposes, but it feels a lot like belonging. Your father and I have been a team of two for almost a decade now, plus Penny. You've already heard her bark at the cat across the street. Your dad says the only way you can disappoint him is if you don't love her. It sounds like a joke, but he's serious. You'll become the third human member of our team. Welcome. I don't know what kind of mother I'll be. This is what I mean when I say our identities continue to evolve. When you arrive, I'll be meeting a new part of myself and a new aspect of your father, a completely altered team dynamic. You aren't even out yet, and I already fear I'm a bad mother. I've slept on my back, which can cut off your blood flow. I've even slept on my stomach, but I suppose telling you that is like breaking that news to a bug you just squished. I've sipped glasses of wine and nibbled cold pepperoni. Worst of all, I'm not experiencing the sentiment, the connection, that so many expectant mothers gush over. These women post photos of their ever-growing belly alongside the fruit or vegetable that captures the size of their fetus, with captions like, my love grows right alongside you. Maybe I shouldn't be telling you this, baby, but I'm not sure I love you yet. Not exactly. I'd be devastated if I lost you, because that would mean losing your possibilities and the future I've imagined. But can you really love somebody you've never met? I look forward to meeting you, getting to know you, and getting to know the part of me that is your mother. I look forward to loving you, but I'm not sure I love you yet. And in the deepest part of me, the darkest part I can't bear to look at for long, I am terrified our bond will never form. I sense the deficit of love, or at least a certain type of love, persisting like a storm cloud. Maybe this is why, at the end of prenatal workout videos, when the instructor encourages me to cradle my belly and connect with the life and love growing inside me, to breathe around the baby and picture each breath as a hug, I turn the video off. I consider the workout done. I can't bring myself to connect, not honestly, not in that honeyed way. 
but maybe what I'm feeling is normal and the love will rush in as you slide out. We're going to try hard to do right by you, but I'm sure we'll make mistakes. We'll snap over something small because it feels large in the moment. We'll get lazy and stop paying attention, just long enough for you to tumble from the couch or make your way through the cabinet beneath the kitchen sink. We won't teach you the best way you know how to learn. We'll want our own space. We may even sometimes miss when we were just a two-person team. Maybe we'll accidentally instill guilt or shame in you. It happens all the time. One day you'll look at us and see our flaws for the first time. After years of believing I always have the answers, that I'm beautiful and kind and dependable, you'll realize I'm controlling and selfish and starting to get old lady neck. That sometimes I say things even though I know it'll make someone feel bad. You'll mistake your dad's introversion for apathy. His stiffness will appear more awkward than contemplative, and his beloved wool will begin to smell musty. You'll have to come to grips with the truth that your parents are human, just as we learned and are continually reminded that our own parents are human. This new reality may be a struggle to reconcile. It may be disappointing, heartbreaking even. Forgive us. Just as I'll forgive you when you grow up despite my best efforts, when you say you hate me, your mother, the woman who hauled you around in her room for the longest 40 weeks of her life, whose body continues to carry the cells you left behind, when you lie, when you endanger your life, the most precious thing to me, when you want your own space, when you send my calls to voicemail, when you don't come home for the holidays, when you, when you inevitably leave me for someone else, someone you rightly love better, and begin your own team. I'm looking into the future now. So far down the passageway of your life, it's tapering into a point. There is much between now and then. Sleepless nights, breastfeeding, diapers, cradle cap, and fevers. And even before that, contractions, pushing, crowning. As I lie in bed with your dad and dog, with you, I shudder at the price I will have to pay to meet you. But I'm confident you'll be worth every groan, every drop of blood. Still, when you're ready to come out and unveil who you are to me, your dad, and the rest of the world, try to suck it in, won't you? We have a long relationship ahead, and you can't underestimate the value of first impressions. Love, your mama. Oh, thank you, Elena. You didn't expect to have it hit you. <laughs> I didn't um, look at the essay before I read it, and I kind—I guess I forgot that. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, now now I have him, and I know him, yeah. and all the ways that our relationship will change. I guess kind of uh, caught me off guard. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's a very powerful. I wrote in my own little column, like really big big picture view. It's, you know, 30,000 feet looking at the swath of a potential lifetime. And he's a, he's a little boy now. And you see much more of how that's starting to shape out. Yeah. It it was easier for me to write it and imagine him in the future than it is now for me to read it and imagine him in the future, because we're just like, I I know him and it's, he's so much more tangible to me than he was in that abstract moment. Yeah. And the thing that struck me most about that letter to baby, I think more than anything, was really the candor of, I'm not sure I'm going to love you. Like, I, you, we really feel your unsureness of what's going to happen with this little creature who is developing inside of me. Yeah, it's so complicated. And I feel like it's simplified in like the public discourse of what pregnancy is like, like, you know, whenever we see it in media, it's always like the pregnancy stick is positive and 
the mother's in bliss and she just, you know, cradles her belly and um, is contemplative and, and you're in love already. Right. People talk about the day that they give birth as the happiest day in their life when they get to meet this baby. And it doesn't happen like that for everybody. And it's not what happened for me. And it really caught me off guard and terrified me that the love wasn't there Mm -hmm. when I was pregnant. Um, And it continued to not be there when I gave birth. And I I mean, I was just like kind of riddled with shame at that point. Like something Mm -hmm. is broken and it's scary because you don't know when it's going to be fixed. Right. Um, but the truth is, is that it's not broken. Like that's just how some people's experiences are, mm-hmm. you know, like hormone interactions work differently for different people. People's just social attachments work differently. So the pregnancy in those first few months, that was kind of like this shadow that was hulking over me is like, and whispering in my ear, like, you don't love your baby. You don't love your baby. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not something that you can express to people openly Right. Although I did end up, you know, telling my husband eventually and then writing this book, so I'm telling everybody. (laughs) No, but that's I I guess that was sort of my next question, even though it's a slow evolution. So I can see certainly talking about it with your husband first. And that must have been scary to confess and writing it down. I guess I wonder how that might have helped you or transitioned the feelings in any way. Yeah, I mean, that did. That's why I made a very intentional decision to write this book in the moment the entire time um, Mm. to like capture those feelings as they are without being able to buff it with retrospect. Because if I wrote the book now, I don't think I'd be able to say bluntly on the page, I don't love my son because it's like so not true anymore that it would be hard for me to revisit that place where that love was so absent. So I'm glad that I preserved it in the moment and like took a lot of care not to revise that and not to, you know, minimize it when I was returning to the material. But yeah, it certainly was scary to write. I think it probably helped that, you know, by the time it got published, because the publishing process is so slow and like the writing process can be so slow um, Mm -hmm. that I'd already, you know, found a place of safety. So it's like, it already feels better to be able to say that I didn't love my son for so long because I'm already at a place where I know that that's no longer true. And I know that, you know, it's, it's something that you, that is developed, but yeah, it would, it would probably be much harder to speak about that publicly when you're in the heat of the moment. Absolutely. I mean, that's where, as you say, the sort of the wash of hindsight comes in and that's how I can imagine all the narratives of motherhood become so firm in the public mind's eye about what motherhood is, is like, there's perhaps a good intention like, oh, don't worry about if you have these kind of feelings, it'll all be okay. But I think it's in that it'll all be okay that there can be a lot of, I call it indignation, like, I don't know, I'm going to be okay. Mm -hmm. You know, like, let's try and figure that out. Yeah. Yeah. And and that's good and well for future me. But like, Mm -hmm. what what about how how does present me get through it? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, what was daring for you about this book? Um, yeah, I mean, I guess just like accepting, I mean, there was, there were so many scary things and writing about them honestly, when there's such a pressure to present yourself in a more refined way as a mother. Mm-hmm. So that was, that took a little bit of daring, but like, I, I mean, I have to say that it's also extremely freeing because to have to like carry this persona around takes a lot of effort to hide the truth is almost scarier because then you're like, well, what if it slips out? You know, that like it's, it's almost 
easier to just jump right in and embrace it so that you don't have to hide things anymore. Um, Mm -hmm. And you don't have to worry about people finding out. So there's a daring to it, but it's also, you know, just an easier way to live. Yeah. And I think that it is always that obstacle, that speed bump getting over fear, fear. And it's um, usually freedom of some sort on the other side. Yeah, for sure. I think it was also tremendously brave to put this down and to share it. So I realized as I was reading through the book, there were so many things that I had no clue. So I wrote this little list of things I had to look up as I was reading. Colostrum, mesh underwear, (laughs) the husband's (laughs) stitch, linea nigra, and nipple prosthetic. Those were only a few of the things. I was like, oh my God, what are, I'm looking all this up. The one, so can I just ask you, because I didn't even really know what the mesh underwear (laughs) was. Oh, yeah. What? It was like a great relief to you. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Like mesh underwear is like the number one thing that if you have a close friend who's about to go to the hospital that you're like, take as many as you can, you know, stuff them into your bag. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Yes, there's so much that isn't discussed. And it's astounding that it's just not public knowledge considering how many people experience it. But yeah, like you bleed for a long time after childbirth and like more than you've ever bled before. Like they tell you to only be concerned about the level of blood if the blood clots are bigger than your fist, I believe, Holy is, um, or maybe a golf ball. But like, that's a big item yeah. yes. to, <laughs> to find in your underwear. Yes. Um, so yeah, they give you these kind of disposable underwears, this mesh underwear. It's elastic yeah. and it, it's just more comfortable. It goes over your, because your belly is now suddenly an empty sack that like yeah. just sags. So yeah, it kind of pulls up and, and holds you in a little bit and it's, it fits better and, and you don't, and you're not worried about it getting dirty because you're definitely going to be staining everything, no matter how many pads. I mean, they give you huge pads too, yeah. to wear for weeks and weeks. Um, but yeah, it's a whole hygiene department <laughs> that, yep, yep. that is opened up to you that you've never seen before. <laughs> Well, that was all very interesting. I'm not even sure how to, but I loved that it was something that you shared, you know, overall. Yeah. I am someone who wants to know what to expect. I mean, some people don't because maybe it's intimidating and it gives them anxiety, but I think there should be choices that you can prepare yourself and there's just such limited information out there. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I, I think it's important that people can prepare it and not be blindsided. Exactly. And th- and that was the other bigger point I came away from your book with was a deep respect and almost responsibility that this is information. Like, I'm going to tell you what I went through because most people don't really want to talk about it. And I respect other women who are going to become pregnant and really do want to know what is going to happen to them or what can potentially happen to them. And you were sick for quite a bit of time when you were originally pregnant. I won't call it morning sickness because you were sick (laughs) at all times of the day. But it is a respect that you bring to women who are going to go through this in various capacities and make it okay to say, this might be the tough stuff you're going to get through. And this is going to be the tough emotional stuff that might hit you as well. But here's why the other side of that 
feels all the more real, I think, is the after effect of, of the conversation. Yeah. And um, the experience is so different for everybody that I think it's like the more of these stories that we contribute to the canon, the more likely it will be that people will find something that they identify with. And I'm wondering, have you heard back from other pregnant women after the book coming out? Yeah, um, I always love hearing from readers, but there is something particularly special about hearing from somebody about your nonfiction because it's such a personal connection and it's just like more immediately intimate. And yeah, a lot of women have reached out to say that for a long time after they gave birth, they had similar feelings and never told anybody about it. And just like for all this time have considered themselves broken and that Mm. to be able to then see themselves on the page and to have it be normalized kind of made them feel human again. So that's been extremely satisfying. Yeah, that is huge. I mean, I think that's the reason why anyone who must write put something down on the page is to Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's the reason that we just communicate in general, right? Is like it's why we share, you know, with the hopes that somebody will return to you and be like, Me too. Yeah. And that something passes between you in that moment. It's just sharing human experience. Yeah, exactly. So you did reveal to us you are also pregnant now again. Yeah. <laughs> how can I ask? How is it going so far? Is like It's really I, hard. <laughs> I'm glad that I already wrote the book because it's actually worse this time. Um, so I'm having a girl. Oh. I don't know if, if that's um, what is making it worse because they just haven't done enough studies to figure out what causes morning sickness, quote unquote. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was far sicker. Um oh. And it hasn't gone away yet. So I think I'm just going to be sick the entire pregnancy this time. Yeah, it's really difficult to be chronically ill. I like had a renewed respect for people who deal with chronic conditions the first time. And now I'm remembering it all again, that like to wake up every day, know that it's something that this, this condition is what you're dealing with and that, you know, you can't shed it and that this is something that you just have to carry with you throughout the day. It's a lot of weight to bring around. Right. Well... Oh, my heart goes out to you because I got to read how difficult it was. <laughs> and and you being here now, I know, you know, just like going through your day when you're sick is a harder thing for anyone. So that's tough. Yeah. But I mean, at least I'll, I'll be released from it in June <laughs> yes, eventually. Exactly. I know. I think having the, the light at the end of the proverbial tunnel, as it were. The other thing that about your first experience was the visceral overwhelming fear that you had about childbirth. Are you still, but you've obviously been through it once. You kind of know for the most part what to expect. How are you feeling about it this time? If you don't mind me asking. Uh, No, sure. Funnily, um, I'm not dreading it the way that I did last time. Um, Mm -hmm. And I didn't have a great experience, but I think going through that pain, you know that it's certainly unpleasant. I'm not looking forward to it by any means, but you know what you can handle and um <laughs> and pregnancy sucks so bad that <laughs> right i'll go through a few days of hell just to, to get out of yes. it <laughs> yes and you can have an epidural as you hold your head yes. up and say you know absolutely like, yes. yeah there are options <laughs> exactly 
Well, thank you so much. I really enjoyed the book, the conversation. Is there anything else you want to say? What else are you working on next? Or Oh, sure. Yeah, I have another novel coming out in the fall. It's called Eyes Turn Skyward, and it's about a woman Air Force Service pilot during World War II and her daughter 60 years later and them reconciling their relationship as um, the secret of her experience is revealed. Oh, that sounds really good. Yeah, I'm excited about it. I knew you had mentioned the character to me, and it reminds me, my grandmother flew, well, she wasn't a, you know, a pilot in World War II, but she did fly planes. She flew before, so that was kind of interesting. Yeah, that's amazing. Oh, uh, you know, a grandmother who flew is a (laughs) a very cool thing. Well, I will look forward to that. Um, is it elenadillon.com? You have a website? Yeah, elenadillon.com. And I'm on Instagram, elena.dillon. That's the best way to follow me. All right. Well, thank you so much. Yes, thank you so much for having me. Seeing a representation of ourselves in the world, especially when that model is different from the traditional happy story of the perfect instantaneous love and becoming a mother... That was a really brave story, and I am so glad that Elena Dillon has spoken up to be that representation, and I hope it is a story that has connected with you in some way. And uh, in the objective of that platform building, as Elena referred to at the start of this episode, you can follow me on Twitter. I am at Michelle Rado. And because I am a ridiculously optimistic person, I thought I would try to start a hashtag. I have begun tweeting with the hashtag one more listener, the number one more listener when I discover a podcast that I love. So perhaps you might do the same. Tweet about daring to tell from the Twitter tops with hashtag one more listener for daring to tell or share a link or tell a friend about it because it is hard work to get noticed. And for me, That's what this is about, sharing our hard-lived, slow-told stories, one listener at a time. Another way you can reach me is on email through my website, michellerado.com. To that end, if you enjoy hearing essays and writing and are inspired to tell a story that may be bursting inside of you, check out another podcast I produce. It is called Heart of the Story with writing teacher and coach Nadine Kenny Johnstone. She shares stories of following her heart with her own essays along with journaling and meditation exercises. Again, it is called Heart of the Story and I will also put a link to it in the show notes. The theme music on Daring to Tell is written and performed by my singing and songwriting husband, Phil Rado. You can find more of his music on Bandcamp. And until next month, thank you so much for daring to listen. And nothing's gonna break my fall. There's nothing in the protocol. It's like swimming up waterfall. Or taking away the ground Taking away the ground It's like taking away the ground